Let's open up our Bibles again, shall we? Uh, let's turn, first of all, to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Um, as David said, we're, we're jumping in for two weeks back into a little mini-series that we did on the doctrine of the church. We did it last summer, around about that time, uh, where we answered uh, four questions. What is a church? Why join a church? Why get baptized? Why take communion? We're looking to add to that series in the next two weeks with uh, two more questions today. Who's in charge? Looking at the thrilling topic of congregationalism. You're all glad you came this morning. I hope you will be. And then next week, why practice discipline? So I'll see you in two weeks' time. So um, we are, we're considering these topics, and the way we're going to do it is there's going to be, this week in particular, not next week, but this week in particular, we're going to be dotting around different parts of the New Testament. That is, those who are here regularly know that that is not a regular practice. We love nothing more than working through books of the Bible, uh, passage by passage and verse by verse. So um, we're out of our comfort zone when we do this. Um, but we believe at times it is helpful for us to take a more topical approach to expounding God's Word, and that's what we're going to do on this particular topic, what, uh, who is in charge. So let's pray again, shall we, before we begin. Uh, Father, your Word says that you're the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, and we pray that out of your glorious riches, you may strengthen us with power through your Spirit in our very beings, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, so that his Lordship might be seen in our obedience, in our lives. And we ask this confident in the help given by the Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Together Forever Baptist Church uh, was holding a church meeting and it was carnage. The search committee reported that the church would, be, would not be issuing an invitation to a particular pastoral candidate because he only got 74.8% of the vote and not the required 75. Alistair, on this side of the room, tried to look calm, but the veins on the side of his head betrayed his fury. He mustered enough control to ask, did no one on the search committee think to round the percentage up to the nearest whole number? Fraser, a spokesperson for the search committee and a maths teacher on this side of the room said, a percentage is what a percentage is. Peter, Alistair's best buddy, stands up. This is preposterous, he says, with a fair amount of spit. I propose a motion to disband the entire search committee. The chair of the elders, fizzing at this request, asks to step out of the chair, walks to the front row, stands there boldly and says, seconded, just to call his bluff. Elaine, standing at the back of the room, puts her hand up and says, can we talk about getting an extractor fan installed in this room because it's really stuffy and I don't think it's just me but it plays with my allergies. Can we maybe put that on AOCB for the end? Now some new believers were sitting in the front row, Bibles on their laps, not opened, and they're looking at each other and at the pastor sitting with his head and hands wondering 
what on earth is going on? Is this how a church is meant to operate? And who is in charge here and can bring some order? At the same time, Martin is in his local pub, uh, drowning his sorrows in his fourth pint. Martin was baptized at Together Forever Baptist Church two years ago. Martin's friend Paolo had brought him along to Christianity Explored, and he wonderfully came to faith through an understanding of the gospel. He was there, uh, um, Martin, regularly on Sundays for months, but his attendance became quite a bit sporadic. I guess because people saw him only every few weeks, they thought he was regular, but no one really asked, because if they had, they would know that he wasn't. One in three became one in six, and soon zero in seven months. Martin had struggled with an addiction to pornography before he came to faith. It actually nearly ruined his life, actually. And a year ago, he fell back into that addiction. He felt guilty. He was sure that when he came to church, everybody could see right through him. They could see this guilt. And instead of stepping in looking for help, he stepped away looking to disappear. When Paolo eventually realized what was going on, he asked the elders what had happened to Martin, and they didn't have a clue what had happened. How can you not know, Paolo asked. You're responsible for him. But a couple of the elders said, well, actually, you're just as responsible. Paolo scratched his head in confusion. Who's in charge around here? Who's responsible for these things? Well, maybe you've heard stories like these. They're made up. And maybe you've got stories of your own that sound similar. But maybe you've asked similar questions. But these are the kind of stories that help you realize that when in the first instance of Together Forever Baptist Church, ministry is hindered by the way they're going about things and there's no order, no authority being practiced. And yet in the second instance, how people are being hurt and forgotten and slipping through the proverbial net. I hope you start to see why pausing to consider the question who's in charge with a specific look at what we're going to call elder-led congregationalism is not a meaningless endeavor. It matters. And it matters even without that explanation because whatever the Lord has reason to put in his word regarding his church, what it is, how it operates, who's a part of it, who's not a part of it, whatever he says about it, is worthy of our time and worthy of our study. The good news is, in relation to the question, who is in charge, the Bible isn't silent on the issue. Jesus loves his church, and for the sake of its unity, purpose, and mission, he's given us clear teaching on where authority lies in the life of the local church. And let's dive in and look at this subject today uh, in answer to the question, uh, who's in charge? I have three answers to that. And the first is this. Jesus is in charge. That's number one. Jesus is in charge. Remarkable, isn't it? Colossians 1. Let's turn there. Colossians 1. Verses 15 to 17 in particular. The Son is the image of, the, of God, the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the head of everything, the head over all creation. So by virtue of his status as creator and sustainer of all things, Jesus is in charge. That's a simple part of this, the answer to uh, our first answer to this question, who's in charge? He is sovereign and he is supremely and beautifully so. But the text continues, of course, going on to say that Jesus isn't just in charge of everything. He's the head of the church. And he is the head of the body, verse 18, the church, the beginning and firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So by virtue of his saving work and by virtue of his shed blood, Jesus reconciles sinners who were alienated from God and enemies of his to himself and into his church. And he is the one who is in charge of every single one of them. In the same way that head controls the physical body, Jesus, the head, is in charge of his. Now, here's why this matters, first and foremost. Here's why this matters to you, actually, if you're here today and you haven't yet come to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because the same authority that he discharges as this text says, in creation and salvation, it's actually the same authority that he's going to discharge at the end of days in something the Bible calls judgment. And when anyone fails to acknowledge that they're made by him and receiving without any thanks the daily gifts that we get from him, like life and breath and everything else, not to mention a disregarding of the wrongs that we do in rebellion against him. These are all the things that alienate us from God and make us, as the text say, says, enemies of his. People in that situation face judgment. But the good news is Jesus uses, used his authority to do something about it. Indeed, he talked about authority even in the subject of his death and his resurrection. The very centerpiece of the gospel, the good news itself. I have authority to lay it down, he says of his life. Authority to take it up again. The reason why he did so was to pay the price for our sins. And the reason why he took that life back up was to show that the eternal life that he holds out to us is very real indeed. So that those who believe in him are truly reconciled to him and therefore presented wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. My encouragement for you is to look into this more. To recognize the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ, who he is, head over all things, head over his church, and realize submission and service are the right and most joyful response to him. If you want to find out more, there's more to read. The Gospel of Mark uh, is uh, one of the accounts of Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. And uh, there's copies of it at the Connect Corner over there. They're free, so you can feel free to go and take one of those after the service. But what about those of us who are already reconciled to Christ and part of this church? It's crucial to remember this, though it's a Sunday school answer. Who's in charge? Oh, Jesus is in charge. But it's vital, isn't it? It's his church. 
actually even thinking about that organizationally, that it's not a state's church. No local church should be under the auspices and the control of a government. It's not a monarch's church. It's not even a denomination's church. It's not, it's not even your church or my church. This is Christ's church. And that makes everything that we do necessarily an act of loving submission that honors his authority in every respect, even if it grates with or disagrees with something we think or hold to in terms of conviction. That makes our gatherings and ought to make them an expression of his reign on earth. It makes our law, his word, the means by which he rules us. It makes our ministry the submissive act of loving servants and faithful stewards. And it makes our mission the unrelenting act of proclamation that points a lost and a, a, a lost hell, a lost people, a lost world towards him saying Jesus is Lord. So who's in charge? The first part of the answer is Jesus is in charge. Number two, the second part of the answer is you're in charge. You're in charge. You say, what? You just said Jesus was in charge. How can I be in charge of the church if Jesus is in charge of the church? Well, let me explain. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, the passage that Nick read to us earlier. This passage, along with Matthew 18, the other passage he read, tells us that Jesus has given his local church, the members of a local church, real authority. Real authority in the form of keys. Jesus gives the members of a local church authority. We see this in Matthew 16, where Jesus gives Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what has Peter done to get them, you ask? Well, he has confessed Christ. That's what we see in verses 13 to 16. And of course, if you're new to church, when we say confession in this respect, it's not an admission of guilt. It's actually a statement of faith. This is what we believe. This is a confession that we're making, okay? So Jesus in verse 13 said, who do people say the son of man is? Then asks the disciples directly, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, verse 16, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Peter, even in that, is just making a public statement before all about what he believes in his heart about this one Jesus Christ who's standing in front of him. He's like, you're the Messiah. You're God's son. This is a carpenter from Nazareth. Yet Peter, based on all he's seen, on all he's heard, he's like, this is the one. Now, Jesus says two things in response to Peter's confession. First, he promises to build, a sol on, build his church on this solid foundation that he calls a rock. Now, it's not Peter, as the Catholic Church believes, but the truth, the confession, the statement of faith, if you like, that he has just confessed. Second, he gives Peter, who here really represents the disciples, the keys of the kingdom. And what does he want him and those who share his, Peter's confession, to do with these keys? Well, the text tells us, bind and loose. If you like, tie in, rope in, or untie, let go. 
I mean, that's what the key, I'm mixing my metaphors, I'm using rope now, but that's what keys do, ultimately. They give you authority uh, to declare who's in the church in regard to who's in the heavenly church and who's not. And Peter, of course, isn't the only one holding the keys. When you turn over to Matthew chapter 18, turn over with me, we find Jesus putting the keys of the kingdom into the hands of the local church. This is verses 15 to 16, where Jesus tells us what we should do if we see a, a brother or a sister sin. We're going to think more about this next week, so I'm not going to delve into it in any great depth. But ultimately, he says, verse 15, if you see someone else in sin, go point it out just between the two of you. Verse 16, if they don't listen, take someone with you. Uh, verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. Now, not the universal church. I mean, you'd need a TV station and a time machine to do that. But the local church, the local body of believers that you are a committed part of. But notice with me verse 18 in particular, where Jesus then says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Sound familiar? Well, it should, because it's the language of the keys from Matthew chapter 16. The local church, in other words, has the authority to do what Peter, representing true believers, was given authority to do. Bind, rope in, loose, untie. And Jesus, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, is given his church authority to consider the confession or a testimony, if you like, of a believer and make a judgment or an announcement about that person's faith or the absence of it. So I guess the binding is best seen when a church accepts someone into membership, or the loosing is clearly seen when a church removes someone from its membership. Now, Jonathan Lehman in his book, Understanding the Congregation's Authority, which I'm leaning on a fair bit for this text, along with other books. You can ask me about those other books later if you want to. He likens this whole scenario to like a judge in a courtroom. He says, the judge doesn't make the law, nor a person nor make a person innocent or guilty. The law does that. He or she simply interprets the person in the light of the law and pronounces judgment. And then he suggests that's how Jesus wants a key-wielding local church to act. That's what he wants them to do. The gospel as we have it is written down. The law of the church is the word of God's. And we interpret someone's testimony in the light of that gospel in the light of this uh, infallible word. And in doing so, we therefore declare a person with authority to be a believer or not. Now, that declaration either binds them, if you like, wraps them into fellowship in all the ways that we talked about earlier, or it can, on occasions, untie them by putting them out of fellowship for their good and for the sake of the reputation of Christ and his church. And such pronouncements, such binding and loosing declarations, if you like, have very real effects, benefits, and consequences according to the instruction of Jesus. Now, quick question. To what extent are we as a church family practicing what Jesus preached. 
I mean, this is a question the elders have been considering over many months. It's one of the reasons why we're visiting this subject over the next two Sundays as we think about it together. We've not drawn uh, firm conclusions on what this will look like in the days ahead. We need to talk about that together as a church. But currently, the elders are the ones who've been doing this. So, for example, in relation to membership interviews, two elders will interview people who want to be baptized and join together with us in gospel fellowship and gospel proclamation. We report to all the elders the testimony shared. We make our recommendation. And we say, this is, a, this is a great encouragement to us. Our hearts are alive at this person's confession of faith. And we recommend wholeheartedly that we bring them into fellowship in the life of our church. But to what extent is the church involved? To what extent are the members involved? Well, I mean, we all read the pronouncement in the church family news email. And we all hear the pronouncement when folks are welcomed into fellowship the way we did it earlier today. But maybe there are other ways that we could do it that involve more of the congregation so that more of the congregation, in fact, all the members can rejoice in and join in this whole process. This is the way it was done. It, the, the church has, has changed its practice over many years throughout its 200 odd year history, actually. But we'd like to consider changing it for two main reasons. One, we really want to do what Jesus says we should do. He's in charge. And he's given the members here, you who are members here, he's given you a job to do. And two, we really believe there's blessing involved in doing this. Namely, that we all have the joy of hearing the people's stories, like the elders do. That we all have the joy of knowing their stories better from the off, so that we're better able to welcome people into the fellowship, welcome them better than we do even now. And so that we all find that our own faith and our own evangelism is spurred by the testimonies and the stories that we hear of people who want to be a part of this church. Now, we're going to talk about practicalities another time. You'll be glad to know. But Jesus says this kind of thing should happen when you gather. Meaning, we'll have to have more church meetings in order to do this in some way. Now, I can hear a groan. You are joking me. More of those things. But if we grasp that this is crucial to our being a church, and actually, if we talk more about these kind of things in our meetings, hearing testimonies of God's saving grace and having our evangelism enthused, as I said, I, and if we do it in glad and grateful obedience to the one we love, I don't think we will groan about this. We'll see the benefit of it. You're in charge of this, Jesus says. And not just membership matters, actually. There's more responsibility given to members within this thing that we call congregationalism. But don't go sticking extractor fans on the OCB. There's biblical direction for the kind of things that should be handled directly by the membership. Not all. We're not going to choose, I was going to say carpets. We don't have a carpet. We're not going to change the color of the seats and bring that to our church meeting. Why would we do that? But Jesus does give instruction. God's word contains instruction about the kind of things that members have responsibility over. And even though you don't actually find the whole idea and concept of the keys being mentioned very specifically in the rest of the New Testament, actually you see, you hear them jangling all the time, if I can put it like that. I mean, we hear the keys jangling when doctrine is discussed, when 
For example, Jesus, via the apostles, he appointed laid responsibility for discerning and declaring true doctrine, like statement of faith kind of stuff, to the local church. To the extent that in Galatians chapter 1, when Paul is calling on the churches of Galatia to sit in judgment on preachers of a different gospel, as it says in Galatians 1.8, like even to the point of removing him, the apostle, if he preaches a different gospel to the one that's been stated and laid down. The responsibility is with them, with the local church. Paul doesn't write to the elders or the pastor, but to the churches themselves. Similarly, in 2, Peter, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 3, where Paul warns Timothy about the kind of teaching, uh, the kind of church that will not put up with sound doctrine and instead to suit their own desires to gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. In other words, Paul will happily here pin the blame for receiving deceitful doctrine on the members. He's got something to say to Timothy, of course. Pastor of the church there in Ephesus, but the responsibilities will be on the members. And given the fact that the majority of letters in the New Testament are written to churches addressing doctrinal matters, it's apparent that the whole church has a responsibility to define sound doctrine according to the scripture, just lay it stated out, this is what we believe in terms of a statement of faith, in order to guard against false doctrine. The members, the local church together is in charge of that. So you hear the keys jangling in relation to doctrine when that's discussed. You hear the keys jangling when leaders are appointed as well, like in Acts 6 when the first deacons are appointed to handle a pastoral crisis. The apostle instructed the church to exercise the authority and responsibility to appoint leaders. We hear the keys jangling again when money and mission and other things are mentioned, but not everything needs to come to a church meeting. And we need to be clear about what our expectations would be of that in regard to the future. What fits the criteria according to scripture for what should come before a church meeting in order to avoid extractor fan discussions and all that kind of stuff. The basic principle that should inform that, like whether or not the gathered church needs to vote on something is, does the matter have clear biblical precedent for local church decision making? If not, I guess you could ask a secondary question of a topic or an issue. Does the matter impact the integrity and the viability of the church's gospel ministry? Now, one thing's clear, there are things you'll definitely not see discussed, extractor fans. And definitely things that Jesus says we should be discussing together when we gather, like testimonies, people with the assurance of people's conversion. And we're going to talk more and more about these things in weeks to come, and I'm kind of dashing through this, but here's why. We believe we'll only serve the church well if we help you understand as members, help us all together understand, because I'm a member as well, to understand the job that Jesus has given to each and every one of us in this church so that we can do it well. We've been given authority, each and every one of us who are members here. And with that authority, you've been given a job to do. And it's important that in obedience to Jesus, we actually do it. So who's in charge? The first answer to the question is the Sunday school answer. Jesus is in charge. 
The second answer to the question is the congregational answer, if you like. The local church, the members are in charge. But there is a third and final answer to this. Uh, the elders are in charge. And you're like, okay, Liam, this is ridiculous. Everybody's in charge. Who else is in charge? Everybody's in charge. Um, well, everything I've explained is just, as I said, what we call congregationalism. This is how Baptist churches like ours are organized. Authority lies with the local church and its members. But Jesus expects local churches to be elder-led. Now, notice I'm not saying elder-ruled like they are in other uh, families of churches and other denominations and so on. But elder-led. So who are the elders then and how does this all fit in? Well, we've preached on this before, so I'm going to dash through this bit. You'll be glad about this, I'm sure. But Jesus gives elders local church authority, uh, elders authority in a local church as well. That's plain from New Testament passages, such as Acts 20, 38, where they are called overseers. Keep watch over yourselves, Paul says, and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The very meaning of that word denotes oversight. Look at that for insight. Management. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 says that elders are, if you like, over the members. Now, we ask, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Indeed, Hebrews 13, 17 says, have confidence in your leaders and submit. There's a word we don't often like. Submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. So there is authority held by elders, but it's not, it's not kind of limitless authority. They're still under authority, under the authority of Jesus. But it's still pretty clear from the New Testament that they have authority. But what kind exactly? Do they have the kind of authority of command where it's just like, you do this, like a sergeant major or something? Do this, and then you have to do it. No. It's not the Lord kind of authority that 1 Peter 5, 1 to 3 talks about, where Peter appeals to the elders to be shepherds of the flock that's under their care, not lording it over those entrusted to them, but by being examples to the flock. It's not lording. It's not authority of command. It's authority of counsel. It's authority of counsel, which is in keeping with the words that come out of their mouths and the way that they live their lives. And both the words that come out of their mouths and the way that they live their lives, so by lip and by life, by teaching an example, should be scriptural. And on that basis, they are overseers. They are over us. And, they, and we submit to them. So it's more of a kind of authority to teach, if you like. So if you think of the you're in charge bit, the congregationalism bit, about, uh, in a sense, is you being uh, in charge. You've got a job to do. You've been given keys, authority. You've got a job to do. We should think of elders with their authority in the life of the local church as being those who train you to do the job by their teaching and example. Teaching that's biblical, we hope. <laughs> Teaching that should be lined up alongside scripture so that everybody can be like the Bereans in the book of Acts who took even what the apostle Paul said as an apostle and checked it alongside scripture, measured it up to see, is this true? Is this right? Or is it just pure waffle? We have to check. 
But Jesus gives these elders then the authority to do this job of teaching and of training. And that's what an elder's authority centers around, their ability to do just that. And if the elders appointed by a local church are teaching and directing in ways and matters consistent with Scripture, then the local church with all its authority is still under Christ's authority, according to Hebrews 13, 17, instructed to obey. If they are teaching or if they're suggesting something that is completely out of kilter with Scripture, then the members still have authority. Pull the emergency brake. Grab that handbrake, even as the car's moving. Stop that thing moving. If you really believe the elders are doing something that's completely against Scripture. Otherwise, let them steer. So what difference would this make in Forever Together Baptist Church? Or Together Forever Baptist Church, I can't remember. In the percentage debate, in the extractor fan proposal, in Martin's terrible situation slipping through the proverbial net, what difference does it make knowing that Jesus is in charge and he's given his church authority to make decisions and to love one another and pursue each other not just to decide on all things, but in certain matters, and not just in church meetings, but in everyday matters of members, to, uh, of the lives of members throughout the church. I think it makes all the difference, actually. I think it makes all the difference when you know the authority that's been given to you and the job that you've been given to do with that authority. You've got the keys. And I know this isn't the funnest sermon you've ever sat through, but I really hope you'll at least be stimulated to go away and consider whether or not it's true. Baptist theologian J.L. Dagg, what a terrible name, said, church order and the ceremonials of religion are less important, less important than a new heart and in the view of some, any laborious investigation of questions respecting them may appear to be needless and unprofitable. Maybe that's what you think about this sermon. That's all right. But we know from the Holy Scriptures that Christ gave commands on these subjects and we cannot refuse to heed or obey. Who's in charge of the church? Jesus is. You are. The elders are. That's what elder-led congregationalism is. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, today has felt a little bit less like we've been on a drive together somewhere and more like we've kind of stopped and opened up the bonnet and started looking under the hood. But we thank you that you have taught us uh, on these matters regarding your church. We, we know of the stories, the horror stories of how things can go in churches like ours and even churches with different um, uh, authority structures. Oh Lord, we, before you and in your son's name, we only want to be faithful to every aspect of scripture. 
And as we consider this subject together, give us wisdom, give us insight. But above all, help us to see Christ in all his glory as the head of all things and the head of his church, even this church. And that we might have joy in declaring what we believe to be true concerning our life together as his body. That unity and love might be the thing that typifies our experience in this church family. That we might be strengthening one another in ways where we help one another in our struggles so that no Martins exist in this church family. No one slips through the proverbial net. We all play our part. We all love each other to death. And we pray that you would give us great wisdom to know how we might better proclaim the gospel and fulfill the great commission call that you've given us. This is why this matters. So as we look to fine-tune the thing that we're, we think we're doing right in obedience to your word, Lord, please help us. Help us to know how to move forward. Help us to be the church you would have us be, knowing that when we are, we best represent your beauty and clearly, more clearly proclaim your gospel. We pray for your help and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to close with a song that reminds us of just how good it is when we do dwell together in unity in faith and through the Spirit. Let's stand and sing, Oh, How Good It Is.